In Armed Forces Week, we assess the impact of the military's response to COVID-19. Some of the young lads uh, and girls that joined the army never expected to be doing mobile testing units around the country. The military and UK Armed Forces have stepped up to the mark and I think they supported the, the national effort brilliantly. A show of military strength at Moscow's victory parade, but what is President Putin's strategy towards the West? Putin is, is a kind of ginormous wrecker. He wants to make our societies kind of weaker uh, and, and almost at war with each other so that Russia can do its own thing, its own sovereign thing, without much pushback. And, and so far, he's been doing pretty well. And what was it like to be one of the RAF's first female fast jet pilots? You ping out the other end of training and suddenly you get posted to a squadron who have never had a woman on it. That was much more challenging. I would lie if I didn't say at times I did really struggle. I'm Kate Jabot and this is Sit Rep. The armed forces have played a leading role in the UK's response to the coronavirus pandemic. One area that's been central is the running of mobile testing stations up and down the country. Back in April, the 4th Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment, formed up a COVID support force for the northeast of England and with more than 100 reservists deployed to provide mobile testing facilities across eight counties. Our reporter Hannah King spent a day with them and has this exclusive report for Armed Forces Week. The walls of the grand old Duke of Wellington's regiment barracks in Huddersfield are lined with the names of those who've fallen in the two great wars. Now, neatly laid out below, are camp cots, two metres apart, belonging to the soldiers of 2020. So this is where I've been sleeping for the last six weeks. Private James Wheeler and his brother Jasper have both been deployed and, like their fellow reservists across the northeast, they've moved into their local barracks to reduce risk to their families. Obviously, we're all spaced out on these camp cots. It's interesting settings, sleeping in the hall here, but everyone's been sort of coming together as a big family, I think, as we've been spending a lot of time together. I've brought my dumbbells in so we can work out in an evening. It's not too bad. We're all used to it now. Yeah, plugs help. So you're going to put your head back, mouth open as wide as you can, say ah, until you can see your tonsils. Down at one of today's testing sites, mobile testing unit Team 11 are hard at work. Locations are based on COVID-19 hotspots, so the team often have less than 24 hours notice of where they're being deployed. If you need any help or guidance, just turn your hazards on and we'll come and help you. Is that right? After sacrificing weekends and family holidays to learn how to do section attacks in Lithuania and urban warfare in Denmark, they could barely have imagined they'd be deployed in their homeland to fight an invisible virus. But even here, in the most unlikely of scenarios, their battle training is still being used, as 2nd Lieutenant John Stubbs explains. On this side, we've got three different areas. You can consider them the three sections of a platoon. Report lines. Uh, they're key areas of the battle where we may need to report information back and we can code word them. But those report lines can conversely be, be used to change the states on my site. For example, being able to have a report line for when the queue is at a certain length in order to increase my manning and process that queue quicker. Uh, we also have uh, left of arc and right of arc. They're often described as uh, no-fire lines, so lines that we cannot fire across. And again, we're using them on the site. So in order to keep civilians safe, we'll always keep them on the outside of the left of arc and the right of arc of the site. So you're very much using battle terminology here at this COVID testing site? Yes, in a way it makes us feel more comfortable uh, and helps us uh, utilise the training that we've been given to best effect. This is our time to, to prove our capability. WO1 Darren Hunter is the regimental sergeant major of Four Yorks. Within the last 12 months we've been building up our skill set and being ready for something um, 
but not being on readiness. And what this has given us is given us an opportunity to prove our worth. When we got asked to be mobilised, there was, there was a moment there where we just, we just hoped that our soldiers would answer the call. What we've got to remember is that these people have got civilian lives and civilian jobs. They've also got families and commitments. So when we ask them to do something, it's not an order. They're not being told to mobilise, they're being asked, can you mobilise? Can you step up and do something for your country? And can you do something for the civilian authorities um, and assist the general public? How do you think you will look back on this time of your life? Probably something that I'll be proud of. Yeah, because I think it's, um, it's going to be a footnote in history as well. This whole, it's the first time in 100 years that something like this has happened in, in the UK, especially. Um, and yeah, and you can sort of look back and be like, I was part of that, you know, I helped out. With the, uh, with the testing and fighting the coronavirus in the UK. That was Hannah King with the 4th Battalion, the Yorkshire Regiment. But what impact has this work had on the public's attitudes to the military? Charlotte Banks has been looking at the findings for a survey for BFBS. 2,000 adults were asked for their views in a special survey by one poll for BFBS. A third of those questions said that the role of the armed forces during lockdown has increased their awareness of what the military does. During lockdown, a tenth of those polled say they've seen military personnel helping out in their local area. And even more people, a fifth of those surveyed, knew that the military have been helping the civil authorities during lockdown. As a result, 71% believe the military need to be recognised more for the jobs they do. But there is some confusion out there. One in five believe the military have been helping enforce lockdown and keeping public spaces clear. And what else does it suggest about the public's attitudes and their knowledge? Well, more than half of those surveyed said they don't know what the military does when it isn't in combat. So it makes sense, I think, that only a third knew the UK armed forces are key in assisting the civil authorities at home in emergencies, including terror attacks and flooding, for example. Overall, though, 80% of people surveyed believe the UK does need its armed forces. That was Charlotte Banks. Well, we'll talk more about the survey in a moment. But first, I asked Warrant Officer Glenn Horton, the senior enlisted advisor to the Chiefs of Staff Committee, how Armed Forces Day will be celebrated this year. It's a completely different platform this year, as you'd expect. It's going to be virtual, um, essentially. It was going to be uh, normal uh, national events around the country, with the main event being at Scarborough. But we can't do that uh, for obvious reasons. So, yeah, it's going to be virtual, and it's going to be on a, a series of uh, social media platforms, and the messaging is going to come out and that's the, the opportunity for people to celebrate it and get involved. And, and broadly speaking, what has been the impact of the last few months on military personnel who've been involved in the fight against COVID-19? Well, I think it's been mixed because, uh, you know, out of the sort of 180,000 defence personnel, including the civil service, it's had a different effect on different people. Uh, some people um, have been um, at the forefront in support of frontline services and others have been like the majority of the country and have had to operate and work from home in a, in a completely different way. So it's been a real mixed bag, to be honest. But, you know, I think the, the military and UK armed forces have stepped up to the mark and I think it supported the, the national effort brilliantly. And you've been working with people involved in many different areas, like building hospitals, running testing stations, for example. What are the lessons that have been learned about working with the civilian authorities? The number one thing for me is uh, is the resilience of the UK Armed Forces and our ability to just step up to anything that's thrown in our way. And I think it was fantastic for us to support the other services, to be able to move quickly, adapt to, to changes, to learn new skills, because we had to learn new skills in order to support and operate 
the other blue light services and frontline services. And I think we did that brilliantly. And I think what we're also good at is working with other organizations and through our experience on operations and logistics and procurement and all that kind of stuff, um, I think we were in a really good position to be able to support the others. And what you've learned in the last few months, do you think there'll be a different approach? And what have you learned? Should there be a second wave? Um, I think uh, everyone, the same as the rest of the country, are you know in preparations in case there is a second wave that comes. Um, I think the Ministry of Defence has, has learned a huge amount and those in positions of authority um, within the Ministry of Defence are, are working on how, how we can operate in the future and new ways of working. I'm sure uh, after the first spate of, of COVID-19, uh, preparations are in, in place now in case there is a second spike. Can you give any examples of what has been learned? I think the procurement and logistics, I think, because we've done that kind of stuff for a long time, I think uh, it was a great opportunity for us to support other organisations with our expertise. The way the military has turned their hand, as an example, having infantry soldiers um, assisting and running uh, testing units around the country. I, you know, some of the young lads uh, and girls that joined the army and other services never expected to be doing mobile testing units around the country. So that kind of thing, that's the new skills that we've learned and something that I'm sure they'll put in their back pocket and uh, have fond memories of, of how they supported the nation in a national crisis. And are you surprised uh, by the fact that this BFBS uh, survey suggests a third of people said the role of the armed forces during lockdown has increased their awareness of what the military does. I'm pleased. I'm pleased that people have recognised uh, the armed forces and the way that we supported the, the national crisis of COVID-19. And I think that's great. And, you know, we, we often say that the public and our society has got little understanding of, of the armed forces. And unless we're on campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan and that kind of thing, they don't really understand what we do. So I think it was a great opportunity for us to show um, how good we are at what we do and how we, we turn our hand to anything to support our country. Yeah. And ex- on that point, exactly, 71% survey believe the military need to be recognised more for the jobs they do. But more than half really don't know what the military does when it isn't in combat. How can you change that? It's, it's about exposure, and that's why Armed Forces Week and Armed Forces Day and National Reserves Day is, is a great opportunity to do that. And it's sad this year that it's got to be virtual, but you know, there's loads of opportunities for people to recognise the military community, and that's not just regulars, it's reserves, it's veterans, it's cadets, and it's the families that support those service personnel. So I think if people can get online as much as they can, and if they can, you know, if people want to find out about the services, go on to the services website. It's to, it's to look at armedforcesday.org and get onto Twitter, get onto Facebook and any other social media platforms and just type in Armed Forces and loads of stuff will come up. It's a great opportunity for people to learn about what we do. And in the context of the pandemic, what do you think the legacy of the work done by the military will be? The same as whenever we turn our hand to a national crisis and support. I think our country, our nation is proud of of the services we provide. Uh, I know we as service personnel are immensely proud of the part that we played in uh, COVID-19 and the national crisis. And I just think it shows how good we are at helping and protecting in the nation's interests. Is it likely to change the future shape of the armed forces? Uh, it's not for me to say whether or not it will change the future shape of the armed forces, but it will certainly, um, like all organisations in the country, I think people are going to look at things in a different way and how we're going to operate and how we're going to work in the future. That was Warrant Officer Glenn Horton. Well, I'm joined now by our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, this response by the military, it's been unprecedented, hasn't it? I tell you, it's quite interesting about the public's attitude, the public's recognition of what the military might do. Because of terrorism, Northern Ireland especially, service people stopped wearing their uniforms when they weren't on duty. At one time, 
people grew up seeing soldiers going home for the weekend in uniform. And this makes a big difference as making the, the military as part of the community. Is that why you think that perhaps the awareness of what the military do is quite low? There's a generation that grew up in, I don't know, the 50s, 60s, when almost every elder member of their family had been in the Second World War. And therefore, there were pictures of them in uniform. But when you think of the past sort of six years, it's hardly been a time when the military hasn't been involved in helping out the so-called civil power, whether it's sort of sandbanking rivers and now this. And we have the integrated review of foreign defence policy coming up. Do you think these last few months will have a lasting legacy on the shape of the armed forces? What most certainly is going to be questioned is whether the armed forces that the United Kingdom pays for now can actually be afforded over the next few years. And I think that we might find a different form of, of, uh, of, of defence review taking place, which may last, but in fact will have to be changed within about four or five years afterwards. Christopher, stay with us. The military power on parade in Moscow this week marked the 75th anniversary of victory over Nazi Germany. The parade was postponed from its usual date in May because of the pandemic, but finally went ahead despite thousands of new coronavirus infections each day in the country. It comes days before a vote to change the constitution that could allow Vladimir Putin to stay in power for another decade. The military hardware was on full display yesterday, but what state is the secret Russian state in? The BBC drama on the Salisbury poisonings has focused attention again on Russia's spies. He's been poisoned. Poisoned? And this is uh, highly sensitive information. Uh, the same toxin was used to attack the Russian couple on Sunday. It's a nerve agent. Mrs. Bailey, listen to me. I know what this substance is now. I know what it's doing to his body. I have a plan to help him. Well, Luke Harding is The Guardian's senior international correspondent, a former Moscow correspondent and author of Shadow State, Murder, Mayhem and Russia's Remaking of the West. I asked him what did he learn about Russia's security services from the attacks? I think we learned that Russia's military intelligence agency, the GRU, this is the outfit that, that did the poisoning of Sergei Emilius Skripal uh, in March of 2018, uh, are both lethal and... Incompetence. I mean, they're lethal insofar as they managed to smuggle in this deadly Soviet nerve agent, Novichok, and, and really in an attempt to kind of kill Skripal, who used to work for the GRU before being spy-swapped uh, and, and starting a new life in the UK. But at the same time, this was really uh, a kind of old-school Cold War plot. Uh, and, of course, we now know that these spies, these assassins left a huge number of clues they were caught on CCTV. And actually, I think two years on, we can say that the operation was something of a fiasco. And yet Moscow has always denied responsibility for the attacks. How did Moscow react to the naming of the two men alleged to have carried them out? We've seen from the Kremlin, not just with the Skripal case, but also, you'll remember, the polonium poisoning in 2006 of Alexander Litvinenko, that what the, what the Kremlin does is deny everything. And more than that do kind of ludicrous counterclaims. So Vladimir Putin's officials have said that the British have kidnapped the Skripals, that they're being held incognito, that they were behind the poisoning and so on. And the goal is to kind of confuse people and to stop the UK from getting support from other countries. Now, 
I don't think it was very effective with Salisbury. It was pretty clear that this was a Russian plot um, executed by by actually rather dim-witted assassins. Um, and we saw a tremendous um, uh, international response. So about 150 Russian spies were kicked out of, of embassies and consulates from all over the world. And I don't think it was a great success, although having said all that, clearly it was a very terrifying message uh, both to the UK and to people in Russia that if if you if you betray the motherland, if you like, there will be a terrible punishment round the corner. And why is it that you believe that Russia's spy agencies are in decline? Well, I mean, I wouldn't exactly say that they're in, in decline, but what I would say is that they are not terribly competent. And, and when I was researching my new book, Shadow State, one of the people I talked to was uh, Viktor Savorov, who was himself a, a GRU officer, uh, a bit of a star... Um, intelligence guy who uh, defected to the UK from the Soviet Union in the late 1970s. And, and he was saying to me that basically what's happened to Russian spy agencies is what's, actually, what's happened to the whole country in the years since communism, that there's been a, a decline, a diminishment, that the quality is not there. There's a sort of falling down of the whole Russian state. I mean, if you, if you live in Moscow like I did, and you try and drive between Moscow and St. Petersburg, the road is terrible. There are there are crumbling villages, and uh, the country has turned into an enormous kleptocracy where the elite steal um, as much as they can and behave with impunity. Um, and and the, the famous sort of Soviet spies of the Cold War era are, are gone, and instead we have these slightly gormless uh, provincial recruits um, who are sent on these murderous operations um, in the UK and all around the world. And in terms of President Putin, what's his objective? I, I think Putin has played a weak hand very skillfully. Um, and ultimately, his objective is, is the same objective that the KGB had during the Cold War. And, and that is to undermine Western democracy, particularly in the UK and in the US, to divide London and Washington from, from Europe and to exploit weaknesses in our system and, and to sort of discredit almost the idea of democracy along the way. And we've seen covert support from the Russians for, for, for the British far right, for the European far right, uh, a massive espionage operation four years ago to help Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in America, uh, which you know we know from Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor who, who, who reported last year. Basically, Putin is, is a kind of ginormous wrecker. He wants to make our societies kind of weaker uh, and, and almost at war with each other so that Russia can do its own thing, its own sovereign thing, without much pushback. And, and so far, he's been doing pretty well. That was Luke Harding from The Guardian. Uh, Christopher Lee, this parade is an opportunity for Mr Putin to harness Russian patriotic feelings at a time when his popularity is somewhat flagging. It's this inflection that we have all the time that Putin has a remarkable plan. The Russian character, and don't forget, we're talking about a nation which is spread across 11 different time zones and speaks 120 languages. They are quite cynical about all this. There are not that many people that turn up or, or get a seat in Red Square. There are not that many people who watch it on television, uh, but they'll know about it. So I think sometimes we can see, exaggerate the, the importance of the whole thing. And it all comes in the same week, though, that the US and Russia started talks on replacing the START nuclear treaty, which runs out next year. What are the chances of a new treaty or an extension of the old one? Well, I tell you what, you might get a new treaty, 
you won't get it this year, you won't get it next year. I'm not sure we need treaties any longer. People find their own levels with the weapons they've got. There have been calls for China and other nuclear countries to take part in the talks, but China's refused. Do you think that's likely to change anytime soon? No. I mean, why should China take part? Why shouldn't uh, the United Kingdom be forced to take part? What about France? What about India? What about Pakistan? What about Israel? All countries with nuclear weapons. This is Sitrap. Now, Mandy Hickson was one of the first women to become an RAF fast jet pilot. Her career included combat experience in the skies over Iraq. Well, now she's written a book, An Officer, Not a Gentleman, which plots her journey through what was at the time a very male world. I spoke to Mandy earlier and she told me about time in the Royal Air Force. Well, I feel really honoured, to be honest, Kate, to have served in the RAF. I spent 17 years, basically, in overall uh, period of time in that, plus about seven years as well as a volunteer reservist. So I added for my hours on the, on the mighty tutor flying cadets after I left. But uh, I had a, a really exciting career flying Tornado GR4s on the front line. I was on two squadron down at RAF Marham. And um, I served my service time uh, basically overseas in the time period between the two Gulf Wars, leading up to Gulf War Two. basically. It was fantastic, a very exciting service career all round, really. You make it sound so breezy and bright, but really, I presume on the front line, there were some very edgy, memorable experiences. Yeah, there definitely were. Um, I mean, you get a bit blasé about it, I think. And it's quite funny, really, because when I was recently sort of revisiting my time and when I was writing my book, it was funny because you're going through all these memories and you're just sort of jotting them all down. But you're thinking, my goodness, you know, if I was to be on the receiving end of someone telling me this, I'd be thinking, this is sort of quite scary. But I think when you're there, when you're doing it, when you've been trained to the level that you've been trained at, it does just feel like the job that you're doing. But you were shot at, weren't you? Yeah, on one occasion, we were uh, just recovering back to base and it was in a really, really quiet area of Iraq. About three and a half months, we'd actually experienced no enemy activity whatsoever. And we were just about to come over the border when we suddenly got engaged by a surface-to-air missile. Fortunately, my navigator spotted it because it was sent up in heat-seeking mode. We managed to evade that missile that exploded about two miles away from the jet. When you're in the air, you're still in your same office environment, which is a really peculiar thing to say, but... You know, you're still surrounded by your cockpit, you know, the the very, very safe environment that that feels like it is. Um, Obviously, when you take enemy fire, then it doesn't feel quite so safe suddenly. But, yeah, the training is just um, incredibly powerful. It's repetitive. You go through everything so many times. So when we had to evade the missile, it was literally like sort of plugging in that cassette and going through a manoeuvre that you have practised many, many hundreds of times before. And yet in the book, self-doubt is a theme and you often sort of question your own abilities during your training, despite being recognised as a very as a very able person at an early age. Um, is it because of the constant pressure that you actually do doubt yourself? I think... You know what, if you were to be really honest, ask ask people honestly to, to give their opinions on that, I think most people self-doubt at some point. And I know there's a lot been said about things like the imposter syndrome, and I know that there's been so much research done on it, and women do tend to suffer from that more than men. You know, whether we want to admit that or not, it's it's factual. You know, that's what the research has come up with. And I think when you're in such a high-powered environment, you know, not in direct competition, but you are with guys that are, you know, at the top of their game as you are. And, you know, going through advanced flying training, it is the equivalent of doing an advanced driving test twice a day for a 10-month period. 
So you're going to hit points where your confidence wanes and you're always going to end up in that spiral of self-doubt when things do go badly wrong then they tend to snowball. And that's where we let all of these negative thoughts come in. And, you know, I have become a master, I think, more recently of actually overpowering those negative thoughts and thinking, you know what, Mandy, you've got a proven track record now. Don't listen to those those negative aspects that keep on coming in. You were the second woman to become a tornado pilot. And it was very much a man's world at the time. How was that for you? People have often said, oh, you're a trailblazer, a real pioneer. And I was saying, well, I never thought of myself as that. You know, you're just going through flying training. And the whole of training was a very different environment to getting to the front line, actually, um, because you're cocooned with a team of, of brothers in arms. You know, they are your best friends. They are your family. You are going through the most intense training and set of emotions and experiences that you're sharing with those guys. And then you ping out the other end of training and suddenly you get posted to a squadron who have never had a woman on it. That was much more challenging. I would lie if I didn't say at times I did really struggle and I desperately craved some female company, especially when you were in the likes of um, Kuwait serving over Iraq at the time. You were told directly you're when you tried to fit in, you were Amazonian but not feminine enough. I mean, what was all that about? <laughs> oh, that was hilarious, Kate. You, I mean, you couldn't write it if you were to, to sort of say that nowadays. Um, but basically, I was going through officer training and... At the time, you know, officer training to be a Royal Air Force officer demanded that its women were feminine. And uh, yeah, we were not allowed to drink pints of beer. And of course, I just come from university. I've been on a, the first team in sports in netball. And we were, you know, pretty proficient at drinking pints. So, so suddenly to get to officer training and basically be in a bar with your nine guys on your flight and then order, order a pint of beer and you have to say, I have to have a half, please. But obviously, being me, I ordered two halves just to run my point home. I would imagine to be a fighter pilot, you have to have a very calm nature, nerves of steel when under pressure. When do you lose it? <laughs> well, I was just laughing, actually, because at the moment, um, I have two teenage sons at home with me who are in lockdown. And it's been very interesting just how often I have lost it. <laughs> so is Mandy Hickson talking to me earlier. Now, lockdown is being eased in the UK and in many countries across the forces world. In the latest of our series on the impact of COVID-19 across the globe, we go to Gibraltar, where BFBS's Simon Marlowe has the latest from The Rock. Well, there are now no cases of COVID on The Rock, which is uh, amazing news. The Test and Trace app has been launched here. It's proving pretty successful. And phase four of lockdown has just begun. That's marking the official start of the bathing season. And that means that all the civilian swimming pools have now opened. And this week, uh, the pool at Four Corners, where all the military families reside, has in fact opened too. All restaurants and bars are now allowed to open till midnight. More schools have gone back, but only for certain years. That's year 12s, and some of Jib College students have returned as well in the last few days. Now, the border is an interesting one. It is open to all those who hold a civilian registration card, which proves that you are a resident in Gibraltar. And as of last weekend, it is now possible to just cross using your passport. However, the success rate has proven a little bit random for some Gibraltarians in the last few days. 
But as of the 1st of July, full freedom to cross into Spain shouldn't cause any further complications. For all those who do cross, you must carry a face mask with you at all times. Now, phase five of Unlocking the Rock happens on the 29th of June, and this is when public gatherings may grow. It's currently 12 people allowed to group together. Restaurants will begin to welcome more people into their premises. And then phase six, which is the final phase, happens on the 15th of July, and that's when all remaining restrictions, if conditions and cases allow, will be completely lifted. And then from the 1st of August, The Rock will be unlocked and the new normal will commence. That was Simon Marlow there in Gibraltar. Uh, and finally, help is at hand from the British ambassador to Washington after a TikTok video showed an American mum and daughter making what they call British tea by heating the water in a microwave. Our woman in Washington, Dame Karen Pierce, has taken up the challenge of showing how to make a real cup of tea. She's enlisted help from the military, first the army, then the navy, and finally the RAF. You don't need a microwave to make a cup of tea. All you need is a naked flame, tea bag, sugar. You can use fresh milk, but this time we're using powdered milk. Cheers. First, you add your tea bag. If you take sugar, stick a bit of that in. Not using a microwave, use a kettle. Leave your tea bag to brew. Then you just add milk. There you are, proper British cup of tea. Making tea at altitude is complex, as water boils at quite a different temperature. Thanks. However, through adversity, we produce quite a palatable product for the enjoyment and education of our delightful US hosts. Chin chin. That was the military and our woman in Washington, Karen Pierce, setting a few things straight there. Christopher Lee, have you ever used a microwave to make tea? I have never used a microwave. For anything. To make anything. <laughs> but I do have a collection of teapots. I think at some time I really ought to find out about microwaves. I think the children have got them. They certainly had them as students, uh, but I've never seen one. Oh, the march of technology. So we'll have to leave it there for this week. Thanks to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And at bfbs.com slash SITREP, you can listen back to past episodes and subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, I'm Kate Chabot. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye for now. 